It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, vegetable rights activist and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Coach, hope your recruiting week is going great. Your coaching week is going great. And we hope to add to it with uh, another episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. And I think you're going to like this one. I don't know if you remember if you're a regular listener to the podcast. A couple of episodes ago, we talked with Celia Slater, who heads up True North Sports and uh, runs a great coaching conference every spring and we talked to her about leadership and it resonated so well with a lot of the listeners of the podcast we wanted to come back and get more perspectives on that because it's something that coaches are constantly trying to figure out how to teach their athletes how to become better leaders and so we went to one of the experts in fact she spoke at uh, the national collegiate recruiting conference that we host every summer Uh, She spoke at that a couple of years ago. It was fantastic. And she has developed a new program on leadership. Her name is Molly Grisham. And as you listen to her, uh, you can see why she is becoming a trusted leadership expert for college athletics and college coaches. She's just really, really good. Um, Has spent years in the college athletic scene and has, again, really become a trusted resource for college athletics. And we wanted to talk to her and get dig deeper into this concept of really a couple of different things. Why is leadership so uh, such a big topic these days for college coaches? And why is it so hard to learn and to teach? Uh, and as we dive into the conversation today, and I want to get right into it because we spent a long time talking to her about her concepts and what she sees working with college athletics, I just want you to, to keep in mind that this whole concept of leadership can really make or break a program. If you don't have leaders, if you don't recruit leaders and know what to look for, uh, it's going to make it a lot tougher to do the things that you want to do as a coach. So as we started the conversation with Molly Grisham, and we'll give all her information, by the way, and how to contact her in the show notes here on the podcast. As we started the conversation, we started with that very simple question, why is leadership such a topic today, and why is leadership so hard to find in this generation of student-athlete? Well, Dan, I think that, as you mentioned, all coaches are hungry to have leaders on their team, and I think all coaches are hungry to be better leaders themselves, but it is a long and a slow process, which I think can be really frustrating at times. One of the things that I'm seeing with teams as I'm working with them is this really abrupt shift that players are being asked to go through where their freshman, sophomore, and junior year, they're not seen as leaders. And then all of a sudden their senior year rolls around and coach says, now you're a leader. And a lot of players are saying to me, what just happened? How did this happen? Uh, Yesterday I was a junior and I wasn't a leader. And today I'm a senior and I'm a leader. I don't understand that shift. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is to help coaches and to help players understand the gradual process of becoming a leader. It's less like an on-off switch and more like a very, very slow dimmer switch that gets a little bit brighter all the time. And so I think the mistake that a lot of coaches are making is waiting until their senior year to develop them as leaders. In my opinion, that process takes years um, to really be successful at. And so if you have a player that comes into your program as a freshman, and no one has ever mentored them, no one has ever developed them, it will take their freshman, sophomore, junior year of intentional leadership development before they are ready to lead as a senior. And the reality is leadership development and and leadership in general, that's a skill set. And the way that we get better at any skill is we practice it. And so if we're not creating opportunities for your freshmen, sophomores, and juniors to practice their leadership skills, why would we think that all of a sudden their senior year, they're ready for it. It's no different than teaching them the technical skills in their sport. The reason on most basketball teams that your senior point guard is your best point guard option is because they got reps their freshman, sophomore, and junior year. They were developed, they were groomed, they were prepared for that moment to be the senior point guard. We have to approach leadership with that same mindset, that it's skill development and that we have to be intentional about developing them. If we expect that just because they're the oldest, just because they've been around for four years, that 
that that day they become a senior, they're ready to lead. We have set them up for failure and we've set ourselves as coaches up for failure as well. So I'll get back to the coaching part of this here in a second, but you brought up something just with the conversation about the training you do and your observations about about players at the college level that uh, that a coach will develop into a great you know point guard, for instance, and that's done through repetition. I'm just wondering when when you begin working with teams and your observation of this generation of student athlete, which gets talked a lot uh, about a lot, uh, this generation. I'm just wondering what what do you feel they come into this setting of college athletics with as uh, as pluses on their side, and then what are the challenges with this generation? What are you noticing that they lack, just with the the overall potential to become leaders on the good and the bad side? Yeah, I, I think we have to be honest about how social media has influenced this generation, and part of that challenge, I think, is this. Um, almost a lie that they have to try to to live up to. And so we see adults doing it as well, but we only post the good side of our life. We only post the positive things. And then we have to figure out how can we continue to reinforce that image that we've posted. And I think that that is a direct contradiction to what we need leaders to do. Because leaders have to be able to call out the hard things, the difficult things, the things that aren't going well. They have to be able to really live in the struggle. And social media doesn't do that. Social media says that stuff doesn't even exist. We live in a wonderful world where things are just perfect. And so I think a lot of young leaders are struggling with that. If my online profile is so positive and so wonderful and everything's great, but leadership feels like, hey, I got to be in the trenches and I got to work uh, really hard through some hard stuff. That's a real abrupt shift. That's a, that's a hard contradiction for a lot of young people to live. They want that positive image that everything's okay. And a great leader is able to walk into a locker room and say, things aren't okay, but I can help navigate us towards a path to be in a better place. And so I think that's the biggest shift that I see this generation dealing with. I will say the, the upside is that when I find a, a young person who wants to lead, it's a pretty magical situation. I think they're very open to how they can do that. Um, they just need the resources and they need the mentors and they need the guidance. My experience has been with, with the teams that I work with, the best leaders are really, really hungry to get better. They want a roadmap. It's just hard to find those individuals. But once you find it, it's a pretty magical situation. So it, you agree with me. I, I, I have the same observation, and I hear it from coaches all the time, that there really is a, a deficit when it comes to maybe the term that you and I would use as a natural-born leader, somebody mm -hmm. that just has that innate quality inside where he or she just wants the opportunity, and they're you know, and they do it the right way, and they have some of the natural qualities. And like you said, they need guidance and they need direction on how to hone those skills. But they just they have that and they have the desire. Can you give any insights to the coach that's listening as to why you think it's becoming a more rare uh, quality that they might sure. find in a recruit or in one of their athletes that they have on their team? Yeah, and again, to me, it comes back to leadership as a skill set. And so I think we have a lot of young people arriving on a college campus lacking some of those skills simply because of the environment that they grew up in. So for me, I think leaders have to be resourceful. They have to be problem solvers. They have to look at a situation and say, okay, I, I, can, I can fix this. I can come up with a solution here. So I think back to me as a kid, I had a key to my house and I walked to school and I would come home at the end of the day and fix my own snack and go play with the neighbors. And I'd come back when it got dark. And that's not the world that current college students grew up in. Um, right. they, they grew up in a cell phone world. They grew up with parents who were probably over-involved in their lives and parents who, with good intentions, tried to take care of all those extra details. And in the process, what we did is we didn't give them a chance to develop the skills to be resourceful as leaders. And, and while we get frustrated with our athletes because they, they can't do those things, they can't problem solve, we also have to realize 
When would they have learned that? We took away so many of those opportunities for them because so many adults saw that as a burden. Well, it's, it's, it's too much to ask for them to pack their own lunch or, or pack their Gatorade in their bag. And so they don't have to do those things. I'll do that for them. That'll make life easier. But what it really did was took away an opportunity for them to develop some skills to be resourceful as leaders. And now they're arriving on college campuses unable to do those things because they just didn't have the opportunity to develop those skills. Right. Uh, one of the topics that we've talked about with some other guests on the podcast is identifying different traits when you are recruiting an athlete. And that's, of mm. course, our big focus is on the recruiting side. So I'm just wondering, do you have any tips, recommendations for coaches? Uh, because this is becoming a more rare quality to find in a prospective student athlete. Do you have any things to look for in potential good leaders that aside from the athletic uh, abilities and, and prowess that they might have. How can a coach at the college level identify good potential leaders or those qualities of leadership in a recruit that they might be looking at? Well, I think there's two paths. One is to observe it and one is to ask about it. And so I think sitting down with a recruit and asking some really direct questions about how would you handle this situation? Or tell me about a moment when you felt like you were a leader, or tell me about a moment when you felt like your team lacked leadership and what prevented you or what prevented others from stepping up and leading. So I think having that conversation early in the recruiting process, planting that seed in their head that leadership matters to you as a coach. Um, and, and worst case scenario, uh, maybe that recruit isn't the right fit, but now they're thinking about leadership as well. And so maybe they start to be a little bit more pro active in that process. But I also think being intentional about whatever your recruiting matrix is, that, that list of things that you check off for a potential recruit, that you have to add some of your culture and some of your leadership criteria onto that sheet. Uh, to me, every coach should have a box that says, you know, whatever your, whatever your school's name is, uh, a check, yes, this is our kind of player or not our kind of player. And that, that should be a hard line. Every coach knows when they walk into a gym or a field or whatever the context is, is that there are certain physical things you look for and, and you're able to say, okay, she, she can't play a ball with her left foot. She can't play for us. Or that, that player uh, lacks a certain skill set that applies to your sport. She's just not going to fit for us. The same has to apply for leadership and culture. So for me, when, when I was coaching, and I certainly encourage coaches to do this now, we can't just show up where we know they're going to shine as players. I think we have to show up at some of the games and the environment where they're going to struggle. So for me, as a former college soccer coach, I love to watch them play high-level club soccer. That's when I saw their best. But you better believe if I was serious about a recruit, I showed up at a high school game where I knew they were going to win 10-0 or lose 10-0 to see how they handled that situation. How did right. they respond when they when they were the best player on the field and their teammates couldn't make them shine? How did they interact with their teammates? How did they handle um, just some of the challenges that come along with high school sports? And, and I, I think that's probably a broad stereotype because there really are some great high school programs out there. But if we only show up to recruit when we know they're gonna shine, we don't see either their rough edges as, as lacking some leadership skills, or we don't see the opportunity for them to really step up and lead in a difficult situation. So. I think part of it is having that conversation with them, talking about leadership, planting that seed. Uh, and then the other is put ourselves in a situation where we can observe them having the opportunity to lead. And did they step up and do it or, or did they fall apart? Well, I think also you bring up a great point that it's not only where they know they're going to shine at mm -hmm. that high level, you know, soccer, club soccer event, maybe in the example that you brought up, but also, you know, I'm as a coach and I've heard other coaches talk about this that you know, they might go to the high school game or something that might be a little less publicized because what do they act like? What, how do they right. perform when they think no one's watching or no right. one important is watching um, right. uh, that might affect their future? So that's a, uh, it's an excellent point. Um, well, and I think there's an opportunity, too, to get a sense of what's their family environment like. You know, when you're at a, a high-level showcase and you look across the, the field and you see – 20 college coaches all in their college apparel sitting there watching parents behave differently when you sneak into a high school game just dressed as a spectator and right. sit in the middle of the parents all of a sudden you start to see what's what's the whole package we're getting from a recruit because mom and dad are going to be on their best behavior on a recruiting visit just like a student athlete is going to be but to put yourself in the in the middle of a stands not wearing any of your school apparel uh, and just listening to what mom and dad are saying 
it, it can be really powerful to understand what you're inheriting. Let me speak for the coach who's listening to what we just talked about. And there's that temptation and you know it, which is what, you know, he or she is such an incredible athlete. And if I get mm-hmm. them on the field or on the court, there's going to be a difference maker. And yeah, they got a little bit of an attitude problem or the leadership isn't quite there, but oh, I can't do you walk away from that athletic talent to, you know, just because they don't, I think they might be you know, the potential to be, a little cancer on the team. And so that's, I think that's the struggle with college mm-hmm. coaches is there's that immediate payoff of the talent. And yet there's the, maybe the long-term, um, you know, the long-term issue of developing them into a good person, teammate. Um, and can they do that? So I, what, what do you do with that struggle? Because I'm sure yeah. as coaches were listening to you, that's what <laughs> some of them were thinking because sure. they're looking at a prospect right now that they're on the fence about when it comes to leadership. But uh, but they know that they're going to be a great athlete. Yeah, so the criteria that I always looked at, there was a kind of a four-box system, and that was player, person, student, and teammate. And if you can find a recruit that checks all four of those boxes, that's easy. Uh, Most of the time, you're probably going to find a recruit that can check three of those boxes, and that's great. But to me, what a coach has to do is figure out how much can your team absorb and where can they absorb that. So if you've got a, a basketball roster of 15, can you absorb four kids that are going to be academically difficult for you. That That is a lot for your coaching staff to handle, and that's a lot for your, your players to absorb because there is that tipping point of positive peer pressure where we can pull somebody in and say, hey, this is our culture. This is how we do things here. And then there's that point where they become a cancer, where they take over the rest of the team. So to me, you know, let's we can stay with basketball. They're in a roster of 15. Maybe you can handle one that's a, a high-risk player in terms of culture and leadership. I don't think your, your team can absorb four. I, right. I think that that crosses that line of becoming a cancer and that becomes your culture. Now on a soccer roster where maybe you're carrying 30, 32, 33, maybe you could absorb four because what you're really asking your players to do is to take on um, anything negative that that person brings and through positive peer pressure, try to negate that. So part of that is where is your team strong and where can you absorb that? If you have a team, um, I, my, I didn't compromise on academics. That, that for me was always like, we just, I have to know you're going to pass your classes. But on a soccer roster of 27, we could have one or two who I saw potential in. Maybe they came from a, a home environment that didn't have high academic standards, or they came from a school system that just kind of let them slide. But something about them, I, I knew they wanted to be in school. I knew they wanted a degree. I knew our team would take care of that. I knew our team through our study tables and um, just our culture would bring that person to a higher level. So what's good about your team? Where can they absorb some things as you think about player, person, student, uh, and teammate? And, and, and really just recognize your team has to absorb this. Your team has to deal with this. You're going to go home at the end of the day, but this person is still in the locker room and still in the dorms and still right. in the cafeteria, and your players are going to absorb that. Are they strong enough to use positive peer pressure to bring that person up to the level that they're at, or does it become a cancer on your team? I right. do think you can take some risks. It has to be highly calculated. Okay, so slight little tangent here since you brought this up, because I, again, imagine a coach saying, hey, I've got one or two of those players on my team that you just described, Molly, that are the potential cancers or the, yeah. the very obvious cancer. Um, for whatever reason, I either can't get rid of them or, or, you know, and also, you know, I want to change them and I'm going to ask a really difficult question because there's, you know, 83 different scenarios that could play out here, but what is your overall recommendation to a coach who has one of those kids we just described and they want, they want to sit down and try to right the ship with, with yeah. him or with her. Can you give some bullet points that a coach could go through to say, look, when you have one of these players, here's, here's what to do. Yeah. I just had this conversation uh, this weekend with a coach, and it's a team I've been with for a long time, and I think we've got a, a growing sense that there is a player who's not making the progress that we need to see uh, in terms of how they're affecting their team culture. Right. So yeah, And I'm is... hearing more and more from, from coaches who are inheriting kids that yeah. were yeah. You know, great in front of the club audience right. and, and everything you just described, and they show up, and 
not only are they just not buying in, they're actually disruptive yeah, and, yeah. you know, just, it's just not, just, it's just not a good situation. It seems like more of those stories have escalated over the last three or four years that I've yeah. heard. So anyway, yeah, back so, to your bullet points. Right. So with this coach, my advice was, I, I think we have to create a very clear, um, checklist of behaviors that we need to see from this player. So it ultimately puts the pressure on the player to decide if they want to be a part of this. Um, I think what often happens on teams is if you cut a player or if, if you're able to, if your administration even allows that, it has a ripple effect. And, and there's this um, often a, a, a backlash against the coaching staff when they do this. Um, immediately that player is the victim and how that impacts the team. So I like to turn that upside down. Let's put it back on the player. So here are the exact behaviors we need to see from you for you to choose to continue to be a part of this. And I think those behaviors have to be very tangible and very specific. We can't say to a player, uh, we need your best effort every day. Well, what does that mean to a 19-year-old? They, they, don't, they don't understand that. But we can say to a 19-year-old, when the coaching staff is speaking, you have to look them in the eyes. That That's very easy to see if it happened or not. Um, when a teammate speaks to you, you can't roll your eyes. That's very measurable. So whatever it is that's that's causing that player to essentially become a cancer on your team, what, and, and I think this is important, we can't just tell them what to stop, do, stop doing, we got to tell them what to start doing. So it can't yeah. just be... Um, stop these negative behaviors, but what do we want to replace those behaviors with? So again, we come back to, you have to look your coaches in the eye. If, if that's an issue, they're not looking their coaches in the eye. Instead of saying, stop doing that, what we want you to start doing is look your coaches in the eye. So whatever it is that's causing that cancer, what are the actual behaviors that you want to see that tells you they're choosing to be a part of this team, which I think is very different than just saying, hey, we're done with you. Let's give them an opportunity to make a choice, but those behaviors have to be very, very tangible. Right. Excellent. Excellent. I want to get into a little bit of the conversation more centered around the, the everyday work that you're doing with, mm. with teams around the country, um, and we'll put all the information on that uh, if, if you're a coach that's listening and you're going to hear um, uh, Molly talk about some of the philosophies and things that she uh, moves forward with when it comes to teaching leadership and, and how to get in contact with her and, and utilize her. Um, but I, I want to talk about a couple of things, uh, and, and part of it relates to the whole idea uh, that you've talked about before with team building mm -hmm. and how there is a, a process, there are phases uh, or even certain times that team building should happen. Um, so can you just run through that? Because you're sure. getting coaches that are listening to this, either they're in the middle of their season or their season's coming up or they just finished their season. And I think it's an interesting idea that there are maybe some right and and, and then less right times to, mm -hmm. to institute team building. And, and so can you just walk through, like, sure. what do you teach coaches when it comes to instituting those phases of team building? Yeah, so I, th I think one of the first things to say is that to me, team building is ultimately relationship building. And that doesn't sell very well from a marketing standpoint. Let's sure. do relationship building. Um, so we call it team building. That, that sounds a little bit better. Um, and, and that is a big part of my work is, is coming in with a team and a coach will say to me, I think we're struggling with our communication or we're struggling with overcoming adversity. And what I do is use the experiential learning cycle. And so I'll create a handful of activities that will really draw out those issues. And then we sit down and debrief those, immediately debrief those. And what's different um, or why that works, I guess, for athletes is you think about their sport experience, you do something in a game and it may be a couple days later before you actually see your team again. Maybe the next day is an off day and the next day they're in class and you don't see them till the afternoon or evening. And you're trying to remember what happened two days ago and make it a coachable, teachable moment. It's really hard for them to recall some of those specific details. But in experiential learning, we're able to do an activity and literally sit down and debrief it right then and there. So the depth of their insights and what they're learning and kind of how that applies to being a better team is, is uh, pretty significant. In my opinion, there's four different times that team building really works uh, for a team. And the first is probably what every coach defaults to, and that's preseason. And what's great about preseason is you've got everybody there. 
and we are able to almost forecast some of the issues that might come up for a team. So a coach will say to me, hey, we've got no, no seniors on our team. All of our leaders left. We've got 10 new freshmen. Uh, I'm just really not sure who's going to step up vocally for us. And so I'll design some activities that really require some people to step up and we'll be able to see how that unfolds. We'll be able to start to predict, okay, this is the player that stepped up. This is a player that took a back seat. How, how did that play out? So preseason team building can be great for forecasting what could be an issue or what could be a strength for your team. I also think mid-season is a great time to do team building because you're able to actually tackle what's real on your team. Yeah, the, the exhibition games are over, the non-conference is over, roles have started to be defined, and let's face it, half your team is really happy with that, and half your team is probably not happy with that. They don't like their roles. And, and so by doing team building, by using the experiential learning cycle, now we're able to tackle what's real. This isn't something that we have to forecast. We're able to say this is happening on our team. Let's deal with it. Uh, another phase that I think is really, really important. And I think coaches miss this. Um, and that is to actually do it near the end of your season. Um, I, I have a team that I work with that brought me in the end of their season last year. Um, it just wasn't the year, it wasn't the year they wanted. And, and people were feeling really down and really negative and they brought me in. And what we were able to do was change how they felt about the end of their season, which directly impacts how they move forward. Um, there's a great book called The Power of Moments, and they talk about the fact that uh, people remember two things. They remember the highlight uh, of a season, and they remember how it ended. And so we may not be able to control what those highlights looked like, but we can control how they feel about how something ends. And so you think about as a, as a coach how many times you've had a rough ending to a season and how that directly impacts how the next season starts. Right. So sometimes bringing someone in and saying, we're, we're just going to like almost rewire their brains. We're going to find a way to make this like feel like a positive ending, even if the win-loss record was disastrous, will change how the next season starts. And then the last opportunity, I think, is the postseason. And I think a lot of coaches struggle with that because your whole team isn't there. And I get it from a budget standpoint. Your seniors are gone. Your new freshmen aren't there yet. But what I like about that is it gives your players an opportunity to practice what their new role will be. So you imagine a, a soccer team. Maybe you've got some sophomores and juniors that you anticipate are going to be really strong leaders on your team. Now we've got the spring to help them start practicing being good leaders so that when the summer rolls around, it's not that abrupt shift again. We, right. we can start to have a team environment where they're practicing those skills. Um, and, and I think for coaches, obviously budgets are always an issue. So where can you get the most bang for your buck? Where do you need the most help? But to me, it's, it's preseason, midseason, end of season, and postseason that are all viable opportunities for team building. Because again, team building is simply relationship building. And if we only do relationship building in the preseason, we've sold ourselves short. Okay, so two, two questions then that, that uh, flow from what you just said. Uh, I'm curious, and this is just your opinion, uh, when you walk into a college uh, team situation that, that you're called to help with uh, on the relationship and team building side, when you identify what the problems are and you kind of source what caused this, I'm just wondering what percentage of the time would you say it's something that the coach was doing incorrectly or could have been doing better and, and also then compared to the athlete that, that you have athletes that could be doing things differently. Mm. And I hate to say, where does the fault lie? But maybe right. I will say that just for simplicity of the question. What, yeah. like, who would you point to and what percentage of the time do you see it breaking down between those two groups? Well, it, it's both. The responsibility falls on both. And what I often say to teams, particularly those that are in maybe turmoil is not the right word, but a difficult situation is that my role is to be a bridge. My, my role is to bridge the gap, sometimes between players, sometimes between players and coaches, and, and sometimes just between where they are and where they want to be. And my experience has been a team that's in a tough spot we can get everybody in the room and they can all say, yeah, this doesn't feel right. Like this isn't fun and we're not enjoying this and something is off. And more, more, more often than not, no one knows what's off. They just know it's off. And to me, 
the thing that is off is often when the coaches are in one place and the players are in another. And how can we get them back in that same space? Um, and usually both parties need to make some changes. And, and it's because they're operating from two different spaces. So you've got pl- players that are off to the right saying, we've got to do this and charge forward. And you've got coaches off to the left saying, we got we got to do this and we got to charge forward. And, and that gap just gets wider and wider and wider. Um, and, and I think part of that, again, it's relationship building. And so when we can get everybody in the same space, then we can move in the same direction forward together. And so that leads perfectly into my other follow-up question, which is this, that, you know, you are an outsider coming into that situation. Uh, and that's certainly what, you know, on, on the recruiting side, recruiting, advising, and developing messaging, that's what myself and our, our organization does. We're outsiders that come inside uh, to a, you know, to a team or an athletic department. You're doing the same. I'm just wondering, like, with this particular focus of, the relationship building, the communication. Uh, why, why an outsider? Why can you do it better as an outsider versus just the coach figuring out how to do mm. it? Why I, is it? Th- you know, just I'm just wondering, like, what, what, what do you see as the different dynamics between somebody coming in sort of off the street, fresh, to a team instead of that coach just trying to handle it? A couple of things come to mind. One is it's a slightly different skill set. Um, it's a lot more observing and listening and listening really, really deeply. And I think that most coaches have success in their career because they solve things as fast as possible. That's your job in a game. There's a problem, fix it, problem, fix it, problem, fix it. And so much of these issues isn't about how fast can we fix this? It's stepping back and listening and asking questions and pulling back layers and in that moment, I am not in fix-it mode. I'm in, let's get it all out. <laughs> let's, let's figure out what we're dealing with before we decide what direction to go. And most coaches have a skill set of identify a problem, fix it as fast as possible. That's your job security to be able to right. do that. Um, I also think that as a neutral figure, I have no control over playing time, over scholarship, over whether you're going to be a part of the team next year. I have zero say in any of that. And your coach always has a say in that. And so for me to come in as a neutral figure, failure is not a bad thing when you're with me because it doesn't impact your playing time or impact your scholarship or impact your longevity on a team. We're just doing an activity and we're going to do the best that we can and see what happens. Um, And so with a coach leading the way, there's always that thought in the back of their head. But that, that guy or that woman controls my destiny on this team. I, as a neutral figure, have no say in that whatsoever. Um, So I think it it can be really refreshing. I think coaches, when they bring someone in, they get to see a different side of their athletes. They get to see them a little bit more relaxed. Um, And that can be really helpful for a coaching staff just to to have a neutral source come in and and sort through some of that stuff. Sure. I want to bring up another topic. Um, Actually, the, the podcast right before this one uh, the previous episode dealt with a coach stepping into a new program mm-hmm. uh, at a new college for him um, and really just like he was starting from square one and you know his the emphasis there was uh, was how do we sell the college and how do we you sort of kick up the momentum how do you basically how do you start that process and I want to take this over to the leadership side that you know, you, you're a coach, you take over the new program and those players, sometimes that's not a smooth transition. There was, there was a reason that maybe the coach previous to, to you stepping in, um, was, was let go or that the, that there was a reason that transition happened. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Yeah. And, and you've talked before about identifying or for coaches to identify, uh, the unique needs in that situation that those Mm -hmm. players, that team might have. Um, when it comes to communication, team building, and the relationship building, can you walk through sort of what you tell coaches in that situation? Um, because you you say that they're a lot many times they are in turmoil. Yeah. So, and, and that's again something that maybe a new coach stepping in isn't appreciating because he or she is trying to organize their office, hire the staff, right. what changes right. in the <laughs> offense, and they're so operational viewed 
in in the way that they come in uh, that they may miss some of that. So if you could just talk about that, sure. that'd be great. Yeah, I, I think we often set coaches and players up for failure in that situation by not really understanding the underlying needs, particularly of student athletes in that situation. So occasionally a coaching staff leaves on good terms or maybe a coach has been there for a long time and and he or she has selected their successor and it's just a smooth transition. But let's be honest, most of the time that is not the case. It's a coaching staff that kind of left in the middle of the night or got fired. Uh, And for student athletes, that's really a moment of crisis for them. This is a person that they have known since they were potentially 14, 15, 16 years old. This is probably the adult uh, or the group of adults that were the most influential in their life at the time. This was their go-to person. This is who they would call or text at midnight if there was a crisis in their life. And those people are just gone. And, and that is a, a really, really tough situation for a 19 yeah, and, or 20 and year old. our research shows too that, that that's, they are the prime reason yes. uh, why yes. they even chose to come to the college. So absolutely. For, yeah, it's a absolutely. traumatic breakup sometimes. And, and you think about how uh, a lot of administration handled that moment. It, it's, a, it's a text to the team. It, it's a quick team meeting where we just say, hey, you're going to have a new coach. We'll let you know in a couple of, of months who that's going to be. That's a really, really tough time. And a lot of negative things can really take root during that uncertainty. And, and you think about when you come in as a new coaching staff, there is so much pressure to catch up. You're probably a whole year behind on recruiting and you, you think that you can catch up <laughs> in the next two weeks. You'll, you'll make up for that year that, that's been gone of, of recruits that decommitted because that coaching staff left. Um, so you feel this enormous pressure to catch up on recruiting, to teach your new system uh, or style of play to your team, to, to just do all the things that a coaching staff has to do. And so where do you get your information about what your team needs? If you're lucky, the previous coaching staff can give you some insight. If they left on good terms or, or retired, they might be able to tell you kind of here's where the team is at. But more often than not, you're going to rely on administrators to tell you what the team needs and that's not a very healthy perspective. Um, if the administration fired the previous coaching staff, they have some perceptions about what was going on culturally that may not be accurate, or you're having to rely on players to tell you what the culture needs. And again, 19 and 20 year olds shouldn't be trying to explain their own culture uh, to a coaching staff. And so you're going off of a lot of false information about how you can move forward. Um, I've written a lot about the phrase second year syndrome, and I find that a lot of new coaches get themselves in a tough situation in year two because year one was the honeymoon. Everybody was on their best behavior. Everyone wants to impress the new coaching staff. And so everyone's off and running, but often, often running in two different directions. And then the second year gets there and we realize, oh my gosh, how did we get to this point? We have run in two completely different directions and there's such a gap that exists between us. So I highly encourage coaches, and it it probably seems counterintuitive, but when you take a new job to bring in a neutral person who can help you figure out what you're dealing with, and I realize that feels like you're pressing pause on all the important things, but what it's really doing is saying, we're not gonna start this journey until we know where we're starting from. If, If you think about it like a a map of the United States and you say, we want to all get to Chicago. That's our destination. And you're assuming that you're all in St. Louis. So you draw out the roadmap to Chicago, but you find out as a coaching staff, you're in St. Louis, but your players are in New York. Your directions of how to get to Chicago from St. Louis, if you're in New York, they don't get you there. Uh, and so getting everybody in that same space. And, and again, I realize that it feels like we don't have time for that. I would say you don't have time not to figure out where everyone is at so you can move forward in a healthy and productive way and to make this transition as smooth as possible. Um, I've worked with some amazing coaches who have had the foresight to say, we need you to come in the first month that we're here and help us figure out what are our issues? What's our pain point? What is unresolved? What are these kids dealing with? Um, And help us figure that out so we can figure out the path to move forward and to move forward together. It it can be incredibly rewarding for a coaching staff to go through that. And it can be incredibly rewarding for student athletes to feel like their coaches care enough to understand where they're starting from. Right. So what pushback do you usually get 
um, when, you know, even when a coach might call you in and you start recommending things, are there sticking points when it comes to, I mean, because again, here they are, they've taken over a new program, they have all these priorities, you're asking them to do some things maybe that are unconventional, at least the way that maybe they were taught or, or what they've observed other coaches that they've worked with. What are the what are the, the hurdles that you usually face? And I ask that because if a coach is aware of maybe what other coaches have done wrong when even when they need help and ask for help, I think it yeah. would be, uh, you know, it's good for them to know ahead of time, hey, here's what yeah. I need to be ready for. Here's what if I have these certain attitudes or, or I put the hurdles up, I, it's going to be harder to get the job done with what we're asking, in, in your case, Molly to do. Yeah, I it's interesting to me. I always get the question of how do I deal with difficult coaches? And the reality is I don't have to deal with them because they don't call me. <laughs> the ones who call me are the ones who are like, tell us what we need to do. Right. Um, we're open. And so I don't have to deal with a lot of that. But I would say in general, uh, for a coach who comes in and takes over a program, my biggest piece of advice, and you don't have to bring anybody in to do this, is to overemphasize the relationships the first year. And I understand you want to do everything other than that. You want to be teaching the X's and O's and, and doing all the physical, technical, tactical stuff. But those things happen because people do them and, and people perform at a higher level when they feel seen and valued and heard. And, and so do what is counterintuitive. Um, I know that when I took over a program, I'd pull into town and drop my stuff off and then go hit the road for a month. And what kind of message does that send uh, my student athletes about how much they matter to me? And so I had to be very intentional. My gut said, just get out there and recruit. But if I don't build up my existing team, if I don't develop them, if I don't invest in those relationships, it doesn't matter who we bring in because we're just going to be trying to cycle out what I inherited. And and I had to essentially re-recruit my existing players to be a part of what we were building. I, I couldn't just assume that they wanted to be a part of it. I, I wasn't the coach that they selected to play for, and I had to earn that trust. And so my advice to any coach taking over a program is to fight that need to be out on the road, fight that need to just be teaching X's and O's and really invest in and develop those relationships. When you bring somebody in, the, you can get a better sense, a little bit more depth maybe of what those players need in those relationships. But if you don't bring anyone in, you can still invest in those relationships in that re-recruiting process of those players that you inherited. Right. So I guess the, the, the other part of this is when, you know, whether you're a new coach and you're coming into that situation we just talked about, or you've been at the school for five or six years and have a good relationship with everybody, you've talked before about needing or a coach needing uh, an ally and some support mm. outside of their direct administration. Yeah. Um, why, I guess, first question, why is that? And secondly, what does that look like? What do you recommend they search for? Yeah, I, that's probably the thing that has surprised me the most about the, the work I'm doing now. That was the piece I didn't anticipate. Um, I thought I'd be doing leadership development and team building and workshops and personality assessments. I didn't realize that I would become the ally for a lot of the coaches that I work with. Um, and and I think more coaches need that. And part of that is because so many administrators now come from a business background. And it used to be 20 years ago, you could walk into your AD's office and they were a former coach mm -hmm. and you could say to them, oh man, I... I probably should have cut this player last year. We're having some cultural issues. This player's become a cancer. And, and that athletic director could say, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. That happened to me once. Now, that's really seen as a red flag. All of a sudden, that person from a business perspective is thinking, I don't, I don't know if you're a good coach. I don't know if that was a good decision. And so I'm finding that a lot of coaches are saying, I can't talk to my admins about what's going on on my team because that's going to show up in my performance evaluation that I didn't manage our culture well. So having someone that they can talk through things, and as a former coach, I get that. I, I understand where they've been, I think is really important. Um, I'm surprised at how often I get phone calls from coaches uh, with teams that I work with who just say, I just need to talk through something. Do, do you think I'm doing this right? Do you, does this sound good? Um, probably the, the biggest call that I get is coaches who are just um, heartbroken over some of the mental health issues that their athletes are dealing with. It is 
a regular phone call that I will get from a coach that says, Hey, we, you know, we've got a player who attempted suicide or we've got a player that's um, really struggling with some mental health. And I'm struggling with that as a coach. Can I just talk through this? And, And so I think being intentional as a coach about who are your allies that have been in that space? Who are, who are people that understand coaching, understand what you're going through um, that you can have as a support system and, and a team that can listen to you because you got the weight of the world on your shoulders and, and you're trying to manage a lot of young people who are also trying to manage a lot of really hard things. And so that's been a surprise to me, just how many phone calls I get from coaches that I've developed a relationship with. It just just want to talk through something, just want to make sure that they're doing okay, uh, get some stuff off their chest. And for me, if I can be that release valve for them so that they can go be better for their coaches, then to me, that's a gift that I can give them every time they call. So I'll, I'll sort of begin to wrap up our conversation with, with tying what you just said into something we talked about at the beginning. We observed at the beginning of the conversation that a lot of these millennial athletes that coaches bring in or that they recruit aren't really prepared or yeah. um, or have been versed in how to become leaders. Do you have a, a couple, as you mentioned, that are just natural born leaders and they're mm-hmm. few and far between and it's special when you find them, but they're most of them need to be trained. And what you just said struck me because I am hearing the same thing that you are, which is a lot of student athletes now on the emotional side, the mental health side, are having struggles that weren't around 10 or 15 years ago that coaches now have to deal with. And I'm just wondering, do you see the two being interrelated? That's the number one thing that I would want to ask the the mental health and leadership. Is there something at the core that's just not developing uh, as they grew up as an adolescent and as a teenager? That's question number one for you. Question number two is what are the immediate things that a coach needs to do or look for when, you know, when they might sense that something's wrong with an athlete, um, not on the leadership side, but on the mental health side. Yeah, I, I think, you know, your first point about just kind of the mental health and that skill set, I, I do. And again, it comes back to social media and this persona that I think they have, that they feel like they have to live up to. And for them, it's an all or nothing that either they live up to this perfect online profile or they don't and that that to them is just world-ending failure and and i think so many of the skills that you that we talked about like our, our leaders aren't developing these skills these are also just healthy life skills about how to navigate some tough things and and so i do think that plays in to some of the mental health issues um i also think we have to be honest about the role that parents play in allowing their young people at a young age to, to access the mental health resources that they need. And again, if parents have to live up to their online profile, it might be hard for them to say that my son or daughter needs therapy or needs medication or needs some help and some resources. And it, and so I feel pretty strongly that we've got to rethink mental health, that we have to approach it very much like we do physical health. And when our body doesn't feel good, we go to the doctor. And so if we're struggling with something mentally, we need to have the same permission to to get that help that we need. And, and I don't think that's happening um, for a lot of reasons. So I do I do certainly see a connection there. And, and I think what's tough for coaches is we are not mental health professionals. And so much of that falls on our shoulders is to look at right. a player and say, are they just having a bad day? Because I had some bad days as a 19-year-old. Or is this really significant? Do we have to shut this athlete down? Do we need to pull in some resources? And I, I don't think we have found, particularly within college athletics, the healthy balance um, of how we allow athletics to be a healthy part of their mental health. And so what I see and what I hear from a lot of coaches is, We've got a player that's struggling and what the school wants to do is pull her off the team until she's healthy. Well, that's the last thing a player wants. They they want to be a part of their team. That's their support system. And so to remove them from that environment um, probably makes things worse and makes them not want to be honest about what they need mentally. Then there's the flip side where you do have a player who is struggling so intensely that it is affecting the team and yet the school has no resources for that player. And so I think this is a place the NCAA and institutions have to address of finding a healthy balance for how we can provide mental health resources for student athletes. Because what we're doing now 
I'm not sure I have a program that I work with that would say it's working. Um, I think most are saying we need more resources and the athletic department needs to have a voice in what that process looks like because the student athlete experience is different than the non-student athlete experience on a college campus. And coach, that's how we wrapped up the conversation with Molly Grisham, our guest expert on leadership. To contact her, you can go to her website, mollygrisham.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Molly Grisham. And uh, we are going to, as I mentioned, put all of the, her information in the show notes so you have access to all the things that she can help your team with or you individually, one-on-one coach, with any leadership issues that you are dealing with or that you want to improve upon. That's what she's there for. Like I said, we had her at the National Collegiate Recruiting Conference that we host every summer as a speaker a couple of years ago. She was fantastic, and that's why we wanted to reach back out to her and get her thoughts now as leadership becomes more and more of a central focus for college coaches. Hey, speaking of the National Collegiate Recruiting Conference for 2019, this summer, July 16th through the 18th, we are set to host it at The Ohio State University. It's going to be a fantastic location, great uh, great time. We are building it out to be uh, one of the best programs we've ever put together, and we always try to beat the previous year's program and every year we managed to squeak it out and get a little bit better every year so all the information on this year's conference is at dantutor.com just look up conferences and get all the information and background that you need to attend this year uh, we really really hope that you can make it because experts like molly come in and uh, blow our coaches away who uh, who make the the time to attend this it's a great way to kick off uh, the beginning of your new recruiting and coaching year and uh, so many coaches come back year after year because the information in the speaker list that we put together is so valuable so we hope you're one of them coach that's it for today we really appreciate you listening hope it's another great week for you we'll be back with more great podcast episodes next week so keep on following tell your fellow coaches in your athletic department about the podcast and get them to listen so that we can keep building this incredible community that we are in the process of building coach thanks for listening we'll see you next time on the college recruiting weekly podcast